Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. <coughs> I plan to st- continue our study of Luke this morning. There we would have come to the account of Jesus as an infant being presented in the temple. And uh, what happened there with uh, the prophetess Anna and uh, with uh, Simeon. But today at the conclusion of, our, of the sermon, we're going to install two new elders to our council. That seemed to beg for a different focus in our study. That seemed to demand that we consider what, it, what has been entrusted uh, to us as a church and what it means to serve the Lord here in his church. So this morning I invite your attention to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 12, where the Spirit has much to say about that subject, both to you who are leaders, will be leaders, and to uh, all of the rest of us. Let me read it. First, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 6 through verse 12. <clears throat> For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. There are three truths that I want uh, you to see in these few verses this morning. The first is simply this. God shines in Jesus. God shines in Jesus. This first first truth picks up on the events of Christmas, which we've just celebrated. In fact, we read about this every year from Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Indeed, we spoke of it again this morning in our Epiphany reading in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Something significant happened in history. God revealed himself. God, who is the light, shined into the world in the coming of Jesus. Now, woven throughout these verses in 2 Corinthians 4 are repeated references to this truth. It's called the gospel. It's declared to be good news. Christ is described as the glorious image of God who has now appeared in history. Here is recorded the radical reality that the glory of God has been seen in the face of Jesus which is exactly what the rest of the Bible describes as well. Hebrews 1 tells us the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And Jesus himself says in John 8, I am the light of the world. God has shined forth into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. 
If you want to see God, if you want to know God, you have to look for God where he has chosen to reveal himself. It's not good enough to look just wherever you want to look or to look where your friends tell you to look. God cannot be be known apart from his self-disclosure. But God has gloriously revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So much so that we read in John 1, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God shines in Jesus. Oh, but this is not just a fact of ancient history that we celebrate at Christmas. This continues to happen today. People today are just as spiritually blind as they ever were. People's hearts are hardened against God. The evil one continues to blind people to the truth of God, to the light of God. He blinds them by the dazzling uh, glitter of this sinful world so that they do not want to see God and do not want to respond so that they're ashamed to come to the light. This is what we read in the Gospel of John. Light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear of his, that his deeds will be exposed. So if such profound blindness still occurs in the world, is there no hope? Oh yes, there's hope. For there's another sense in which God is shining in Jesus. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Here God shining in Jesus is not just a reference to a, a, an historical fact of Jesus' coming. Here God is shining in Jesus into our hearts today to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This shining is nothing less than a new creation. In the beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he went on to create the whole universe. And now that same God says of sin-darkened sinners, let the light shine in that darkness. And in Christ, a new creation takes place. People who were dead in sin are recreated in Christ, given new life. People who did not know God now see the glory of God in the face of Christ. God shines forth in Jesus, bringing us, bringing about a new creation. So how is a person who is dead and lost and blind in sin, suddenly to make himself alive and saved and, 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 and seen in Christ? Well, you can't. Only God, who can create something out of nothing, is able to give such life. But God does give us this new life and this new sight when he calls us to Jesus. This morning, that glorious sun who shines the Father's perfect radiance calls us to come to him. And, and he promises, whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. So will you come? He promises that those who come to him and believe in him have everlasting life. For still today, God is shining 
in Jesus, shining into sin-darkened hearts to make us new. Oh, here's where we need that song we used to sing that we haven't sung forever. Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us. Set us free by the truth you now bring us. Shine on me. Shine, Jesus. Shine. Fill the land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. And send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. Folks, that's the glorious message we have to tell and to live in the world. But then the very next verse almost sounds contradictory. Which brings us to our second point. God displays his power through our weakness. God displays his power through our weakness. <coughs> There's a contemporary Christian group that calls itself Jars of Clay. Perhaps you know that group and listen to the music, but you didn't know about their name. Well, here's where it comes from, this passage. Their name was intended to be a testimony to the fact that God displays his power through our weakness. Now, jars of clay, not, not the music group, but the, the clay pots, jars of clay were quite common in the first century. They were used to store all kinds of household items, used to carry food and water. Sometimes a little jar of clay had a wick stuck in it and became a lamp. Uh, oil put in and it became a lamp. Earthenware vessels were common and inexpensive, um, but they had no intrinsic value. A, a, a metal pot could be repaired, but clay pots, which were so easily broken, could not be fixed. If they cracked or leaked, you just discarded them. They were something comparable to our disposable plastic containers that we use today. And yet sometimes, People use these common clay pots to store treasures. I mean, what a great hiding place. Put a treasure in, in, in something that had no value at all, who would ever look? Indeed, the Dead Sea Scrolls, these valuable ancient manuscripts that include early uh, parts of the scripture, some of our earliest copies of the scripture, were found almost 2,000 years later, hidden in some clay pots in, in, in a Palestinian cave. Paul says, that's what God has done. He's entrusted his greatest treasure into some clay pots. Now, what's the treasure? According to the context, the treasure is the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's the knowledge of the Creator who, by his word, said, let there be light, and there was light, who now shines through the gospel of Christ to make sinners a new creation. This gospel is God's treasure. His message of grace and forgiveness in Jesus. His new covenant which God has established in Christ. That's the treasure. And what are the jars of clay? What do they represent? Well, that's God's description of us. Indeed, it's a very fitting description, is it not? For we are literally made of dust. We are at best dust formed by the Creator into an earthenware pot. In other words, we are 
organized dust. And like the clay pots of old, we're easily broken and quickly worn out and worthy to be discarded. So here's the unfathomable, unfathomable mystery. The creator of the universe has been pleased to entrust his glorious gospel, his plan to restore the world by recreating a whole new race of people through the life-giving work of Jesus. The creator has entrusted this treasure into people made of dirt. Clay pots. Why? One would think that this treasure, this powerful gospel of Christ might be endangered being deposited, entrusted to some clay pots. But in reality, you see, the, the, the opposite is true. When the vessel is weak by its very nature, it's really obvious that the glory resides in the contents, not the vessel. But if the vessel is strong and beautiful, then no one knows for sure whether the glory is really in what it contains or whether it's just a really attractive uh, piece of pottery. So God has chosen to display his power and glory in our weakness. His most glorious treasure in his most mundane vessels. Let me change the metaphor slightly to try to explain the apostle's part, part, point. Somewhere along the, lay, the way you have probably seen some circus animal acts, haven't you? So, so which is the most impressive? Which demonstrates the magnificent skill of the trainer? For that's really what it's about. It's about the skill of the trainer, not the innate abilities of the animals. So, so is it the Sea World show with Shamu, the killer whale, and the dolphins? No. It's obvious that those are some of the most intelligent animals we know of. Anyone with a bucket of fish could make them do something. Or, or is it the circus bears riding bicycles? No, as every camper knows, a bear is a very smart critter. He can figure out how to open your cooler in the middle of the night to get the food out. Now, the most remarkable animal act I've ever seen involved a trained chicken. Now, that's remarkable. That's some kind of trainer. For everyone knows chickens are notoriously stupid. In the same way, God's power is displayed by entrusting the treasure of the gospel, not to chickens, but to creatures like us. Think if the gospel were entrusted to angels, those ministering spirits who do remarkable feats in God's service. What would the results be if the gospel were entrusted to angels? Well, well, well we already know. For God does use angels, and, 
And, and he's told us that. And what happens? People immediately begin to give glory to the angels and for all their wonderful care and all their wonderful deliverance. Go into any Christian bookstore and you'll find lots of tributes to the angels for doing the things which really God does. Ah, but when the gospel is entrusted to humans, these creatures of dust who fell into sin and had to be rescued and recreated at such a terrible cost, then what is the result? Well, the apostle describes it in another place. For ages to come, all the host of heaven will marvel at God's wisdom and power displayed in the gospel. For clearly, mankind has nothing to do with bringing salvation to the world. God simply displays his power in our weakness. Folks, this is a breathtaking truth. This ought to set your heart to singing. God has not chosen the mighty angels to be his witnesses on the earth. He has entrusted the gospel, which is the power of God to save sinners, entrusted it to us frail, uncertain, often broken, always weak clay pots. For God is pleased to display his power in our weakness. This morning, you need not despise your weakness. God knows all about it. He has intentionally chosen to use you in spite of it. So that in your weakness, in your frailty, in your trouble, he might show his power. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul here in verse 8. This is what these four contrasts are all about. Paul admits that he's weak. He's in over his head all the time. He says he's pressured, hard-pressed. He's often perplexed, doesn't know what to do. He's the victim of persecution. The word means hunted. He's sometimes struck down. That's a wrestling word. Taken down. Ah, but in his profound weakness, in his inability to keep everything under control, Paul sees the power of God at work. For in spite of his weakness, he says, he is not crushed, and he is not in despair, and he is not abandoned, and he is not destroyed. For God displays his power through his weakness. Now this was a struggle for Paul. He tells us later in this same book that he had pleaded with God to take away this weakness, and God refused, which baffled him. Listen to Paul tell about it. In chapter 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak then I'm strong. That's the thing the Spirit would teach us in these verses. That God displays his power in our weakness. Well, one more truth here, a third thing, which is uh, very similar, but uh, with a different twist to the second, and that's this. To know Jesus' life 
you must taste his dying. To know Jesus' life, you must taste his dying. In our culture, we want to know nothing. We want nothing to do with death. Everything is about living. What makes living better? How to live longer. How to live life to its fullest. We're all about living. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to face death. But the Bible talks more often about dying. About Jesus dying, which is at the heart of the gospel. And about our dying, which is at the heart of discipleship. That emphasis is no accident. God is making sure we understand that to know Jesus, life, we must taste his dying. In fact, four times here in verses 10 to 12, four times our experience of the life of Jesus is linked to our experience of the dying of Jesus. Now this concept is true on a couple of different levels both of which are mentioned here. It's true in, in, in regard to our personal life. Sharing in Jesus dying causes Jesus' life to be at work in us, both now and eternally. That's what verse 10 says. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Every believer wants to know Jesus' life, wants to know Jesus' resurrection power at work in him. But we don't learn the power of Jesus' resurrection as we might expect. We learn it by sharing in his dying. To know Jesus' life, you must taste his dying. Isn't that just what Jesus taught us? If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You see, in the Christian life, all the power of the life of Jesus at work in us is not a matter of learning techniques of Christian living from the plethora of Christian how-to books that you can find. No, learning the power of the life of Christ in us is a matter of learning to deny ourselves, learning to put to death the deeds of our flesh, Learning to abandon self-trust in favor of trusting him. Learning to not let the circumstances control us, but to be intentionally taking up the cross every day to follow Christ. In short, to know Jesus' life, you must taste his dying. I tell you, there's no other way to know Jesus. You have to abandon your commitment to self-preservation. And every time you do, some part of you dies inside. Like Paul, you will learn to be a walking dead man. One who carries around the dying of Jesus. And there you will know Christian living. This is also true in a second way in the sphere of ministry to which God has called us. It's not just that by tasting Jesus' death, we come to know his resurrection life, It's also true that by our tasting of Jesus' death, we bring others to know his life. Experiencing a share in Jesus' death yields life to those to whom we minister. This is the way ministry is accomplished. Paul says it plainly in verse 12, Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's experience 
was that people came to know new life in Jesus by him coming to experience the sufferings and the dying of Jesus. This church in, in, in Corinth had heard the gospel and received new life in Christ because Paul came at his own expense, laid aside his rights. He continued there, even in the face of opposition, in the face of trouble and suffering. He literally poured out his life for them. The reason the other teachers had come to Corinth, who had more impressive methods. But here the Spirit indicates there is no other kind of ministry. Ministry is always about dying to self, washing dirty feet, giving yourself away. There's a great illustration of this in the hymn that we know and sing, So Send I You. This hymn was based on Jesus saying to his disciples, it's recorded in John, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. It's a call, this hymn is a call to go minister uh, the gospel in Christ's name. But uh, you may or may not know, there are actually two versions of this hymn. There's an older version, the original version, written by Margaret Clarkston in 1954. Uh, but it's recently been considered too negative. So in our hymnal, for example, you don't have that original edition. Instead, she wrote a newer version in 1963, which is a bit more palatable. So, so let, let me read you some of the words of the new version of So Send I You. Here's how it goes. So send I you by grace made strong to triumph, or host of hell, or darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear, and in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win. So send I you to take to souls in bondage the word of truth that sets the captive free, to break the bonds of sin, to loose death's fetters. So send I you to bring the lost to me. So send I you my strength to know in weakness, my joy in grief, my perfect peace in pain, to prove my power, my grace, my promised presence. So send I you eternal fruit to gain. Amen. Preach it. Hallelujah. I believe that, don't you? It's great. But may I suggest that the original words of the original hymn more accurately reflect the point that this text makes. That those lofty goals of bringing the life of Jesus to the world will only be attained by our willingness to taste Jesus dying. Listen to these original words, for they too are true. They describe well what tasting the dying might look like. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with heart a-hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one. So send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire. Self-will resign, to labor long and love when men revile you, 
so send I you to lose your life in mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend, though it be blood, to spend and spare not. So send I you to taste of Calvary. You see, to know Jesus' resurrection life, to know it yourself, or to make him known to others, you must taste his dying. There isn't any other way. So what does all this have to do with the installation of elders to our council? Well, I think sometimes we may lose sight of the significance of what's going on here. For almost a hundred years now, people have met in this building regularly every week and sang and heard sermons. Some of you have been here for decades. So chapel life drones on. It's all good, but really nothing earth-shaking ever seems to happen. Oh, but you see, that's not the case, really. God shines in Jesus. The light of God's grace is shown into the world, and it will never be the same. And even today, the light of God's grace is shining in hearts and making them new. What is happening here, weak after week, year after year, is not nothing. A whole new creation is being created. Very quietly. Right under our noses as the gospel is proclaimed. Well, meanwhile, these elders who do understand the significance of the work of the gospel are likely to be overwhelmed with the calling they have received. They undoubtedly feel as unworthy and as inadequate as clay pots this morning. In fact, I will tell you, I've never met a good elder who thought he was adequate for the task. Oh, but you see, today we learn that God has intentionally chosen a bunch of clay pots into which he has entrusted his treasure For God is pleased to display his power and glory through our weakness and inadequacy and humility. Don't ever fail to pray for and support these men. They're in over their heads. And then most of us probably feel that life is good here at the chapel. We know the Lord. He's forgiven our sins. He's given us hope. Things continue along pretty well in the church. There's no big hassles. People like each other. It goes on from week to week. Seems good. How could it be hard to serve the Lord here? This must be a great place to serve the Lord. And it is. But don't kid yourself. To know Jesus' life, you must taste his dying. This morning we're commissioning men 
to lay down their lives for this church. Not that we expect someone to come in and kill them, that's not true. We're just asking them to give their lives away a piece at a time. To die to themselves and to their desires and to their plans an hour after an hour, an evening after an evening. In order that we might know the life of Jesus here. But you see, that's the true nature of serving the Lord. That's how the ministry gets done here and everywhere else. Whether you see it or not, by people tasting the dying in order that the life might prevail. Finally, when we talk about all these things, the treasures of the gospel, the clay pots into which God has entrusted it, the call to lay down one's life in service, when we talk about all this, we may just assume, well, we're talking about the role of our leaders and the responsibility of our leaders, and that's true. But in reality, their primary role is to set the example for everyone else. In other words, dear people, the Lord is talking to you about all this. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that shakes us out of our complacency and causes us to see the great things that you're doing, the great glory of the gospel. Lord, to rest in, not in ourselves and how strong and impressive we are, but in your power and glory in the face of our weakness. To remind us, Lord, of the call to take up the cross and follow, to be willing to lay down our lives in order that we might know Jesus' life. Oh, Lord, cause your truth to sink deep into our minds and hearts and to change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.